Welcome to episode 10 in the second season of Justice with John Carpe, the podcast from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. I'm the show's producer, Kevin Steele, and I'm here with our host, John Carpe, who is the president and founder of the Center. Today, we're joined by Marty Moore. Longtime listeners will know that Marty, a lawyer with the Justice Center, has appeared on this podcast before. Recently, he returned to Alberta from BC, where he was involved in a court action which saw the Justice Center challenge the provincial health officer's prohibition on in-person worship services. Marty's here to give us some top-notch first-hand podcast testimony about how it all went down, down at the Vancouver Supreme Court. So Marty, according to your email, you were the head paper shuffler at the court case, but I think you are actually associate counsel or something like that. Why don't you tell us, give us your official title at that hearing. Sure. Well, I was uh, the Justice Center lawyer uh, assigned to work with Paul Jaffe and the rest of their team actually as well, Brandon Langhelm and and others from the legal team working on this case, uh, challenging BC's prohibitions on in-person worship services and also its prohibition on outdoor protests. And so we brought those issues to the court, uh, filed a case on January 7th of this year, and uh, had a full hearing on that uh, starting on March 1st to 3rd. Although before we got there, we had some fireworks with the government. On February 12th, the government decided that they were going to take our three petitioners who have been fastidiously following all of these random health guidelines coming out of the BC CDC, whether that's social distancing or contact tracing or masking or what have you. Uh, but for them, they just had to meet in person, but that in the province of British Columbia was prohibited. So even with those facts, the BC government decided they're going to take my three petitioners, uh, the religious churches there, to court to try to get a court order against them, uh, an injunction, in fact, to shut them down before the full hearing on the merits of this case. So uh, it's been a, it's been a ride. And uh, now the case is, has been heard by the by the court as well. So, yeah, so maybe you could just sort of take us through that day. Um, I don't want to blow by blow, but sort of give us the highlights, the lowlights of uh, maybe the government's case, because we, we've heard a lot of the Justice Center arguments on this show. So what are they telling you guys in court? Or what are they telling the judge? Yeah, And if, well, if, I, can, if I can interject, uh, maybe just give background on the BC case. I understand it's uh, not as broad-based and comprehensive as the uh, – our court actions in Alberta and Manitoba, but it was more of a narrow targeted specific court action in respect of churches having to have their rights and freedoms restricted far more severely than restaurants. So maybe give us some background on the case. Yeah, no, that's, that's an excellent point. Well, and and that's exactly the case there in BC in the month of November, the BC uh, provincial health officer, uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry, issued orders that entirely prohibited religious gatherings with very minor exceptions for baptisms or or funerals, but at the same time as entirely prohibiting religious gatherings, regardless of the safety protocols adhered to, uh, the BC government continued to allow movie theaters initially, continued to allow restaurants and gyms to be opened. Uh, you could go to a restaurant in BC and sit at a table with six different members of different households, but you could not attend a worship service regardless of how many uh, safety protocols were in place. Now, as time progressed, uh, some of those factors changed a little bit, but the facts 
continued to be that religious services were prohibited while support groups were allowed up to 50 people. Uh, you could go to a bar, an unlimited amount of people in a limited amount of time. Uh, you could go to restaurants, you could go to the gyms. But again, religious services themselves were entirely prohibited. And also, this case also uh, targeted the prohibition on protests. Gatherings and events were prohibited, including demonstrations. And so individuals outdoors exercising their fundamental right to protest the government violations of their rights and freedoms were getting $2,300 tickets for violating the public health orders as well. And so it was on those two uh, specific bases that the Justice Center proceeded uh, to seek an immediate and prompt hearing of the matter and to address this uh, disparate treatment uh, immediately and, and uh, precisely. And that's what that's what the court challenge was brought. It wasn't a broader challenge than that, but it certainly did attack a multitude of gathering events orders and restrictions that affected you know the lives of many people across the province of British Columbia. Okay. Uh that's great background. Now can we get to the day? I really want to hear about the court case. <laughs> well, even before we get there, so I, I just want to give you a little okay. background on the on the injunction application. So February twelfth, sure. the government uh, you know, brings this injunction application demanding that in addition to the penalties under the Public Health Act, which include, you know, fines of $2,300 for event organizers, you know, anyone holding a church service, but also if an offense notice is brought, imprisonment up to six months or fines up to $3 million. So these were the powers the government already had. And so then they came to court on February 12th against our three religious uh, petitioners, the three churches in the Fraser Valley. And they said, court, we want you to also issue uh, an order that if they violate that order and continue religious services, we can throw them in prison for doing that because that's that's the contempt of court proceedings. And we've seen that in other places and we don't have to get into the James Coates situation, but that's what's happened when there's a court order. Contempt of court means essentially you go to jail until you follow the court order. And not only that, the government also said, and we also want to give police the power to arrest anyone who the police believe intends to attend a religious service. And so this is what they came to against our, our clients, again, who've been meeting for the last nine months without a single recorded case of COVID in their congregations transmitted there. Uh, they've been following all of these safety protocols to the T, far better than many other situations in the province of British Columbia. So they came to the, uh, the court on February 12th. The judge uh, found that they did not meet the required test, including the requirement to show that on a balance of convenience, they needed this very invasive order against our clients. And so then, proceeding almost to the day of the hearing, and this, this thing changed from day to day. So two days before the hearing is set to commence on March 1st to 3rd, the government sends our clients an email. And they said, by the way, we've now looked at some of your communication. And our clients have been writing the government since November saying that we will meet safely, we'll follow guidelines, but we have to meet in person and your order doesn't allow us to do that. Please allow us to do that. So two days before the hearing, the BC government responds, Dr. Bonnie Henry's uh, signature on the email and the letter saying, we're going to grant you an exemption. And here's your exemption. You're allowed to meet only outdoors. You're only allowed to meet with 25 people. And you're not allowed to sing or chant. And a, and a bunch of other requirements. Now, it had been revealed in the court application that, in fact, this same kind of exemption had been given to uh, a number of other religious groups, uh, primarily Jewish synagogues, never been reported publicly, but, but, but others had received this outdoor exemption. 
Now that would have been, you know, fine for our clients to have that same offer, maybe, you know, months before, two days before the hearing, we were a little skeptical. But the weekend before the hearing, uh, we found out that two days before our clients were granted an exemption, the government had in fact granted a new exemption to the Orthodox Jewish synagogues in the province of British Columbia, which had permitted them to meet indoors. And then two days later, they permitted our clients an exemption to meet outdoors. And on the first day of the hearing, the government stood up and said, Your Honor, we shouldn't be having this hearing because we've now given these churches an exemption. And, you know, we had to bring it to the court's attention that this exemption process of the government was incredibly lacking. First, our clients have been seeking a response since November and only got one two days before a hearing in March. And then there was disparate treatment, which had no basis in science. If one religious group can meet indoors two days before another religious group is only permitted to meet outdoors, on what basis in science is that determination made? And furthermore, uh, you know, and just background facts, we're still getting to this hearing. Background facts is that there have been many religious groups seeking these exemptions uh, from these orders from no, from December, from January, and they'd never even received a response. And uh, and so that was brought to the court's attention as well. And that, that really brought us to then the fundamental issue. And, you know, the court recognized the fundamental issue in, in some important questions. And, and one of the questions that Chief Justice Hinkson asked was, why can an individual gather at a bar in British Columbia and watch the Vancouver Canucks lose, sometimes, more often than not, perhaps, but can't gather with fellow religious adherents to celebrate the tenets of their faith or to worship their God. And this was the question that the judge asked not just once, but repeatedly. And in that hearing, you know, having that front row seat as, as the paper pusher, uh, as, as Paul Jaffe was arguing that, that case, uh, the government did not have a response. Uh, they had two lawyers, Gareth Morley and, and Jackman Hughes. But a response to that question that would satisfy common sense, but of course satisfy science. Now, the Justice Center had presented the expert opinions of, of two, two experts, medical experts, an epidemiologist, which is, you know, an important aspect. All these public health officers are practicing epidemiology. Our expert was a, a gentleman who had been the chief medical health officer for the province of Manitoba for 12 years and handled the original SARS COVID crisis and the H1N1 pandemics. And so had some experience about making decisions on these matters. And, and he looked through the government's evidence, including the affidavit of their deputy uh, provincial health officer. And he said, there's nothing here that justifies this limitation on religious gatherings. I mean, the, the BC government in their materials, trying to justify, and Kevin, you asked, like, what did they have to attempt to justify this prohibition on religious gatherings? Well, the BC government pro provided the court with the bare statements, not the data, but just the bare statements linking a total of 180 cases, which they claimed were associated with religious settings in the province of BC throughout the period of the pandemic. That's all they could point to with all of their vast array of knowledge and data. And this is out of, I mean, to date, there's been almost, there's been over 80,000 COVID cases in the province of British Columbia. And the BC government could provide Chief Justice Hinkson with 
a grand total of 180 cases associated with religious settings in the province of British Columbia. And of course, religious settings being those settings that were targeted most specifically and most draconianly uh, by the provincial health orders being entirely prohibited. And so one of the important questions that we had to ask was, what about the comparative data? Now, of course, the BC government didn't provide any comparative data. They didn't say, oh, yes, and there's been, you know, X number of cases associated with bars and X number of cases associated with support groups and X number of cases support associated with, you know, uh, old folks. Homes. <laughs> right, exactly. They didn't provide that kind of data. And so we had to do some digging ourselves. And one of them was a, a FOIP request, which we provided to the court. And, and that was uh, showed that in a six-week period in, in the early fall in British Columbia, there were 150 cases associated with gyms and fitness centers. Within just a six-week period, there's 150 cases. And that's all the data we got on that particular question at that time. But now, and that's before they prohibited religious services and allowed gyms to continue operating. And so the, the question as to what is the justification for prohibiting religious services and, and keeping other things open, which we're not saying that things needed to be closed. I mean, what's 150 cases? That doesn't indicate deaths, etc. But the comparative numbers, 150 within a six-week period to 180 within a on almost year period now, I mean, we're getting, we're getting close to that. The numbers didn't make sense. And Marty, and, sorry yeah. to interrupt, is this also, we're talking about the, uh, the PCR numbers. That's what you're referring to? Yeah. So P well, PCR actually, testing. even, even broader than that, because the British Columbia, of course, if you have a piece, a positive PCR test, they label that a case, but also if you don't have a PCR test, but you are a close associate uh, or in close contact with somebody who did have a positive PCR test and your test came back uh, in, you know, indecipherable or maybe you didn't get the test. Well, then you're also labeled positive COVID case. So the, the definition of a case is, is very broad and it's even broader than just a positive PCR test, which, of course, you know, is quite this a broad This is referring standard, to the 180 cases? This is referring to the 180 cases. So that could have included cases that there was no uh, infection at all. Right. Okay. Well, and of course, a case is just a PCR test. Right. And many people yeah. have no idea whether they have COVID until they get this, this PCR test in the mail. Um, mm. And so, or the results back. And so, you know, these were the circumstances that we brought before the court. And at the court hearing itself, the government initially admitted to violating freedom of conscience and religion. They admitted to violating section uh, 2B, which is freedom of, of uh, thought, belief, opinion, and expression. They admitted to violating the freedom of peaceful assembly, and they admitted to violating the freedom of association. Uh, now, they resiled from the admission to violating the freedom of association, saying, well, actually, people are free to associate, you know, via Zoom. Well, we have evidence in the record saying that some of these people couldn't access Zoom services, for example. And so, uh, you know, it was disconcerting to see that. The government did claim that, oh, well, we have justification for doing this, and Dr. Bonnie Henry was reasonable in doing this. But in regard to protests, now, you know, this was a two-part case. There's religious services and the prohibition on protests. At the court hearing, the lawyers for the government admitted that not only had they violated the freedom of expression and the freedom of peaceful assembly, they had also violated that 
unjustifiably and unreasonably. So they admitted that they were wrong categorically constitutionally to violate and to prohibit the freedom of individuals to gather outdoors and to protest. And so that was that was a good thing to see. That was a win for us. On February 10th, the government issued a new order saying we're not prohibiting protests outdoors so long as they speak on issues of public controversy. So what? in inserting now some sort of a government measure which says you're allowed to protest as long as the government feels that it's sufficiently controversial on what you're protesting. Oh, and further, you're only allowed to protest if you follow guidelines, which are which Dr. Bonnie Henry said were published on her website. But you can go to the website. You could not find any of these guidelines. And so the Justice Center brought that before the court as well, saying this new found respect for the charter rights to protest also is incredibly uh, violative of basic constitutional principles. The government should not be dictating what protesters get to talk about outside. And if, if it's safe, and the government, again, the basis for this admission was that the government had zero evidence of any case transmission at an outdoor protest in the province of British Columbia. And you may recall that this, the province of British Columbia had a lot of protests, including massive Black Lives Matter demonstrations. Every week, it seems, in Vancouver, there are protests about uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Uh, there have been protests about lockdowns as well. And so the government had no evidence that there'd been any case transmission there. Not, not, a, not one. And so they said, okay, well, I guess we're going to have to admit this. And they did. But then they imposed these restrictions as you can only protest if we like what you're saying or if you're saying something that's controversial enough. And if you're complying with guidelines that we haven't told the court or you what those guidelines are. So what does that do to protesters? Well, apparently a protester can protest, but they might still get ticketed. And again, the, the penalties under the Public Health Act are, are huge. And the order still prohibits demonstrations in B.C., which would include a protest. So you're still prohibited unless it's allowed by this little exception, which allows you to speak on controversial things in compliance with guidelines that you've never heard of, seen, or, you know, even know what they are. And so... It's just, Marty, I got, I got to ask you. So demonstrations are illegal, but protests are okay. Well, that's, <laughs> that is the conundrum that, that was presented, exactly. So the orders... The way the BC government indicated that they were going to allow protests is they put in the whereas clauses of the order a recognition that the charter protects the right to protest and that they weren't going to prohibit protests on things that were sufficiently controversial, provided that those protests complied with the guidelines. So that's in the whereas clauses. Now, many contract lawyers out there can tell you that the whereas clauses aren't the binding terms of the contract necessarily. They might be used in the case of interpretation, but the, the real meat of the document says that demonstrations are a prohibited gathering or event. So, yeah, the, the government has admitted that they violated the right to protest, but their orders to this date continue to violate that right to protest and argue. And so that, that issue is still live before the court. And it isn't justified in what they presented. They, they have, they have that, zero – if their worry was about COVID transmission, they have zero evidence that there was any COVID transmission in an outdoor protest. Now, mind you, that also might apply to the rest of the country. What has 
the basis been for the other provinces in the country? I think of Saskatchewan, I think of Alberta, Ontario, Manitoba, and, and Quebec, where people are arrested, where people are getting $2,800 fines for every time they speak at a protest, for example, in Saskatchewan. What is the government basis? How many cases have they seen from protests? I mean, our client held protests in Dawson Creek in the wintertime. Now, for those of you who don't know, Dawson Creek is a very northern community. I spent some time there as a young person working on the pipelines. It's cold. It's especially cold. And, and one of the things that you were required to do under guidelines in BC was, you know, provide hand sanitizer. Well, everybody's wearing mitts and, and scarves, and it's minus 25 below for Pete's sake. Oh, but yeah, you know, the, the police issued a news release in Dawson Creek saying, well, they didn't have hand sanitizer out there. I mean, this is the kind of ridiculousness that these orders were, you know, inculcating in, in, in the law enforcement community, which I'm sure has a lot more important things to worry about than whether someone is speaking on a controversial enough topic or whether they provided hand sanitizer and mine is 25 below. When people don't protest on something that's not controversial, I've never seen a protest, you know, for or against uh, girl guides uh, selling cookies and telling people to be nice to each other. I mean, if, if people protest about anything, it is invariably something of public controversy, whether it's, you know, taxes or climate change or lockdowns or racism or abortion or something of public controversy. And then your plane ride home, Marty, you were saying that uh, you've got a full plane with everybody sitting side by side. Uh, pretzels are handed out by the same two flight attendants to all the people on board. Everybody takes their masks off and everybody eats the pretzels. And you got, what, 50, 100? How many people crammed into a plane sitting side by side, all perfectly legal? Yeah, well, and that's... That's that's where the, the asymmetry of this was really, really highlighted. I mean, not only there. So, you know, I sat in a courtroom for four out of five days last week in this hearing. And there was a, a number of individuals that gathered in that courtroom as well. There's 23 individuals permitted in that courtroom. It's the Air India court there in the at the BC Supreme Court. You know, 23 individuals are permitted there. That's 23 individuals more than are permitted to gather in a religious service in the province of BC. But evidently, they were permitted to do that in the courtroom. Now, every day I had to go out for lunch. So I had to, to go get food. Well, you go sit down at a table in BC, you take your mask off, you eat your food with, you know, maybe a couple hundred people in the restaurant who you've never met before. And then for the flight home, our flight was entirely sold out, completely sold out, WestJet, was making money on this flight. Not a single seat to spare. You had to check all your carry-on because there's no room. And then, you know, you all got your masks on. We're so close to each other that our shoulders are touching, right? Like there's no social distancing. There's social distancing zero on that flight. And then, you know, they come down with the pretzels. They come down with the, the bottles of water. They hand those out. All the masks comes off. Everyone starts eating. And, you know, you just realize, what? is the logic to this? I mean, I'm not an epidemiologist, but as any rational thinking person would have to conclude, there is no logic that says you can fly in a plane with 150 people you've never met. You can sit in a bar with 200 people you've never met. You can go to a courtroom and attend a hearing but if you step into a church where it's a religious service going on, now that is the real crisis. Regardless of if you're in a bubble suit, you can't step into a church and celebrate a religious service in the province of British Columbia. 
And that is the kind of thing that should drive people nuts because that kind of government raw power used to target specific communities exercising fundamental constitutional freedoms makes you so frustrated and so uh, just disconcerted with this, this statement that this is all based on science because they did not let that mantra go. In fact, Kevin you mean they John, kept saying it? They kept saying that, you know, judge, you cannot allow religious services to meet on the same terms as support groups in the province of British Columbia. Because I, they, they might have felt the ground being a little shaky under their feet. And so they, they started to talk about what remedies the court might offer at the end of the hearing. And so the government lawyer said, you know, if you're going, if you're feeling inclined to issue an order that says religious services should meet with the same guidelines that you per permit uh, groups like support groups to meet, you know, 50 persons, contact tracing, masks, hand sanitizer, what have you there. And the government lawyer said, don't you make that kind of an order. What you should do is you should say, go back, Dr. Bonnie Henry, please go back and redo this decision. And the lawyer for the government said, because Dr. Bonnie Henry may want to instead prohibit support groups instead of allowing religious services to meet on the same terms as support groups. That was a statement made in the court by the lawyers for the government. And then the, the court's response to that was, uh, I don't know if we want another group of protesters outside the courtroom. I mean, <laughs> imagine all the AA groups and all the other groups coming out to say, well, now you've prohibited our support groups. And of course, the court was realizing already that religious faith communities provide an incredible amount of spiritual and emotional support to people during times of crisis. And, you know, paying lip service to that fact does not mean that you are actually respecting the constitutional freedom of groups to do that kind of support, which in many cases cannot be done uh, through Zoom. The vulnerable among us often need that, that in-person good word, whatever it is that happens in many of these religious services. There's evidence in our court documents that, you know, a lot of these individuals felt that that was incredibly essential for them, even for overcoming drug and alcohol addictions and abuse to attend religious services. And so uh, anyway, that was kind of the, the, the way the court hearing went down. The justice has reserved his decision. You know, there has, has been this admission about protests in the province of BC, even though the orders are still unclear. But the prohibition on in-person religious gatherings we will look forward to hearing uh, back from the court, uh, hopefully soon. Uh, the judge noted that this is a very important case, that there's a lot of serious matters to address, and he's going to take his time with that. Um, but he's also aware that our clients, for exercising their charter rights and freedoms, continue to be uh, under the threat of, of fines, but, but even imprisonment under the Public Health Act there for, for violating this in my respectful submission, completely irrational order in, in the province of British Columbia. I just want to backtrack a second there. Did the issue of other jurisdictions get raised in court? Like you had mentioned it yourself. Uh, you had brought it up, but you didn't say specifically whether that's what happened in the courtroom. Was that talked about at all? What, what had happened in other provinces or other places? There was some consideration uh, of what happens in other provinces and places. Very little, though, okay. uh, other than the fact that, of course, we raised to the court that BC is alone in its particular targeted treatment of religious services at that point. Now, 
I mean, I'm looking at Alberta rules that changed yesterday that said now you can have 25% capacity in certain retail spaces, but you can only have 15% capacity in religious settings. So there is certainly disparate treatment as you go across the provinces. But this 100% prohibition on religious gatherings in light of opening up things like gyms and restaurants and bars and, and support groups is, is, is unique to the discriminatory nature of the orders of Dr. Bonnie Henry in BC. Who did not file an affidavit in the court, which is despicable because court actions are supposed to be based on sworn evidence. And that could be a witness that takes the stand in a viva voce or a a live voice hearing. So you have a witness that's sworn in. Do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth to help you God? Or alternatively, in a lot of court actions, you have sworn evidence by way of affidavit. And the rule is whether you're testifying orally or whether you swear to an affidavit, either way, you can be cross-examined and you very often will be cross-examined on your testimony. So you, you can't say, well, I'm going to, I'm going to say my piece. I'm going to, you know, put in my, my two bits and then I'm just going to walk out and leave. No, 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 no. If you testify in court, uh, either live taking the stand or by way of affidavit, you're going to be subjected to cross-examination. And this is one of the pillars of our court system is that you have sworn testimony that is subject to cross-examination where the other side can question you on it. And and often that questioning will go outside of your testimony, but will touch other parts of the court action that you didn't necessarily speak to specifically. And I find it despicable that the BC government did not have uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry swear to an affidavit uh, in this court action, uh, and then she could have been cross-examined on the affidavit. And the fact that they continue to try to rely on you know, press conferences and uh, just uh, public relations for their their factual basis. Or did they, I believe, Marty, they did, the government did put in some evidence, but it was not, it was not by way of Bonnie Henry. It was by way of somebody else. That's right. So instead of having Dr. Bonnie Henry swear an affidavit, now there's not one sworn statement by Dr. Bonnie Henry in the court case at all. Uh, what was sworn was a deputy provincial health officer, a guy by the name of Dr. Brian Emerson, swore an affidavit attesting to information that he believed was before Dr. Bonnie Henry when she made the orders themselves. And so we brought this up with the court saying, well, that violates a, the traditional rule, which John just explained, against hearsay. And the government essentially said, well, we're not relying on this information for its truth. We're only telling you this is the information that Dr. Bonnie Henry had when she made the decision. And of course, in response, the Justice Center put forward two affidavits of experts, sworn affidavits from them saying, here's the epidemiological data, here's the uh, infectious disease risks, and we believe, and our opinion is, that these religious services are not a significant risk of spreading a a transmissible disease. But yet, uh, the evidence of Dr. Bonnie Henry, you know, never made it into court because she never swore a statement and the evidence of, of her deputy uh, was essentially just saying these are numbers that, that BC has, although they didn't provide the full data where they got those numbers from. And so scanty evidence really from the province of British Columbia was presented. Do you have no way of compelling something from Bonnie Henry since she's in charge of this? You, you can't compel her to, to well, make statements? So the, the constitutional context is very important. Mm. The Justice Center, on behalf of its clients, bore the burden to show 
that the actions of Dr. Bonnie Henry and the BC government were infringing the charter rights of our clients. Now we did that. We, uh, we, we proved, it was admitted that our clients' rights to freedom of religion were infringed, our rights to freedom of expression and freedom of peaceful assembly. All of that was admitted. And we also argued that the freedom of association, the right to liberty and security of the person, and the right to equal treatment before the law were also breached. So we argued all of that. But then the government's burden then is to justify those infringements. And so when the government fails to put forward evidence justifying the infringements of these uh, rights, the decision must go to the plaintiffs who've shown that their rights were infringed. And so our evidentiary burden was, was certainly met, uh, I would submit. Uh, in fact, the government admitted it in many cases, uh, but then they had this burden to justify. And so could they justify it in the face of our experts saying it's not a justifiable infringement and, and them not putting on expert evidence and only relying on, on sparse data, which was obviously lacking in the relative comparators. And, and again, the question is, why can you sit in a restaurant or a bar watching a, a game, drinking your beer, when you can't go to a religious service and in a socially distanced, safe manner, participate in, in the sacraments of your faith? Uh, was was the evidence of the uh, the Jewish synagogues that were allowed to have people indoors uh, meet inside the synagogue? Was that put before the judge? And of course, this goes back to you cannot rely on media reports because a court cannot they can take note of the fact that a certain newspaper or a certain website published certain information on a certain date, but the court cannot look behind that and run with the truth of that report, right? So again, it gets down, get, boils down to, to, to sworn evidence. Um, yeah. So that brings up a really interesting point because that's exactly what we faced when we found out the weekend before the court hearing that there was going, that in fact, when our clients had been granted an exemption to meet outdoors, 25 person limit, no singing, etc. Uh, a different religious group had been granted an exemption to meet indoors. And so we brought evidence of that to the attention of our, uh, our friends, uh, lawyers for the government. That's how you refer to lawyers for the government or any lawyer opposing you uh, as our friend in the collegial nature of the law of Canada. So we brought that to the government's attention saying, we intend to bring this to the court's attention. You should bring this evidence to the court's attention. They refused to do so. And in fact, we brought it up to the court's attention saying, you know, here's an affidavit from our client showing that they're aware of this, these reports. And so we brought an application and the court compelled the government to produce into evidence the actual communications authorizing indoor services for this other religious group, for these Orthodox Jewish synagogues. Now, within 12 hours of us bringing to the government lawyer's attention that when our clients had been granted an outdoor exemption, other people had been granted an indoor exemption. Dr. Bonnie Henry wrote back to those Orthodox Jewish synagogues and revoked their exemption to meet indoors. Oh boy. And then issued them an exemption that aligned with the exemption that she provided our clients. So on February 23rd, Dr. Bonnie Henry's deputy authorized an exemption for Jewish synagogues to meet indoors for both Purim services and weekly Sabbath services. On February 25th, our clients were offered an exemption only to meet outdoors. 
And then on March 1st, the government revoked the authorization for Jewish synagogues to meet indoors for their weekly Sabbath services and only allowed them to meet outdoors. And all of this, all of this in the context, for example, of no numbers whatsoever being traced to outdoor gatherings. You know, so whether you're pro- and only the 180 for the indoor gatherings, right? Right. And whether you're protesting Black Lives Matter or celebrating Purim or Ramadan or or Easter, an outdoor setting would be the same. It's people outdoors. Maybe they're speaking. Maybe they're chanting. Well, it doesn't really matter what they're chanting about. The medical risks shouldn't differ. But according to the government of BC's apparent lack of logic, it does matter. And so, yeah, you're only allowed to meet outdoors for religious worship services now in BC. They've, they've revoked that, that grant of indoor uh, religious service permission uh, to the Orthodox synagogues. This is, this is just despicable behavior, if I may say so, from the government of British Columbia. Uh, this treatment of religious communities, whether it's Jewish or whatever have you, uh, it should be consistent. A rule of law should not be so discretionary that one group can be treated disparately from another group. And then when that is revealed, the permissions permitted to another group are revoked so that the court can see, you know, that people are going to be treated the same. Uh, I predict that the court will see through that. And and certainly uh, those points were brought to the court's attention. So the court hopefully is not going to be swayed by the government's science. (laughs) Yeah, there was there was precious little real science being argued before the court other than the science of our clients who the government took issue with saying, well, where did they get this number that there, you know, were 11,000 cases in, you know, Vancouver coastal health region, even though we're getting it from their own affidavits. Those are the kind of nitpicky things the government was going after our expert affidavits on when in fact, you know, this is, this is a matter of, you don't have to have a degree in science to understand the nature of the disparate treatment at issue. Right. Yeah. Now I had a hard time understanding, I, I granted you're on the side that is attacking the government. I had a hard time understanding what the strongest point of the government had made. Do you have well, a, an idea of what their, what their argument was, was Kevin? That? Their argument, Kevin, was that this case shouldn't be heard. They're, they're, this, the parties, these churches, they're not entitled to challenge the order, Kevin, because we granted them exemption two days ago to meet outside, not to sing, to have 25 people, and to be fully masked the whole time. That, they, that was their argument coming into court. This court should not hear the legal challenge to the orders because we just granted them an exemption two days ago. Oh, okay. And that was their primary argument. Okay. Their secondary argument was you shouldn't consider their expert affidavits because this is a judicial review and you should only consider... Uh, evidence that was before Dr. Bonnie Henry back in November or something like that. Even though, in fact, before the latest order, we'd given them these expert affidavits. And, and, uh. Did they cross examine? Did the government's lawyers cross examine? But could they have cross examined our experts if they chose to? If they had applied to the court, they could cross examine. Uh, no one did apply to cross examine in this case. There was relatively undisputed facts. We didn't dispute their claim of 180 associated cases with religious settings. They didn't dispute our experts other than, uh, yeah, they never, they never challenged the, the raw assertions that they made, which were that these religious gatherings were just as safe as any other gatherings. 
in the province of British Columbia that were maintaining these standards, which were permitted uh, under these orders. And so the reality is, is that the government was arguing, well, this is just a, a, a judicial review. And in fact, though, this is a constitutional challenge to a law. And the courts have always been clear that you cannot challenge constitutional issues and, and unconstitutional laws in a factual vacuum. And so, again, I those were the, the biggest arguments the government relied on. Uh, whether they hold the day to prohibit uh, a Section 96 Superior Court, which the B.C. Supreme Court is, from determining the constitutionality of a law, I sure hope not. Mm-hmm. That was It'll a bit of a setup, uh, uh, that question that I asked you about uh, their best case, because I want to just throw in my editorial comment here. To me, this was a perfect opportunity for the government to present their science, to show the world that what they had done was completely justified based on the pandemic, and they showed us they've got nothing. That's my editorial. That's exactly it. That's exactly it, Kevin. And yeah, it'll be interesting, you know, with Pastor Coates in jail in Alberta, uh, the Alberta government's health orders are going to be on trial coming up shortly, May 3rd to 5th. I say shortly, that's easy for me to say. I'm not sitting in jail. Uh, Pastor Coates, as things stand today, is uh, slated, slated to spend another eight weeks in a maximum security facility with accused murderers, accused rapists, uh, and, and convicted murderers and rapists. And that's where he sits today in uh, in Jason Kenney's Alberta. But I, it'll be interesting to see what the Alberta government does if they're going to do, you know, put forward the the same mediocre evidence or non-evidence that, that the BC government put forward. Because when Pastor Coates uh, gets tried May 3rd to 5th, we are challenging the constitutionality of the... Uh, Alberta health orders, and uh, the government's going to have to show us the evidence that uh, COVID is indeed this unusually deadly killer that uh, that we should all fear. They're going to have to show us the evidence that the PCR tests are reliable. They're going to have to show us the evidence that uh, healthy asymptomatic people are significant spreaders of the virus. They're going to have to show us the evidence uh, for their theory that uh you know, this is a grave danger to all of the population. They're going to have to show us the evidence that lockdowns are doing more good than harm. They're going to have to explain uh, all of the lockdown harms that are taking place. Uh, things like people dying because uh, Dina Henshaw canceled their surgery or people uh, getting serious fourth stage cancer because they could not get their MRI or CT scan in a timely fashion, drug overdose deaths, suicides, uh, all of the mental health arm, harms that that stem from isolation and loneliness that that contribute to stress and anxiety and depression, uh, the unemployment, uh, the increased suicide rate that takes place whenever unemployment goes up, all of this stuff, the government's going to have to show some evidence for the first time, and uh, I, I think they're running scared because they're accustomed to getting an easy ride through fear-mongering and uh, press conferences and using these meaningless uh, PCR numbers of cases and and a very uh, pro-lockdown media that do not provide proper context. So what we saw in BC is going to be taking place on a larger scale in Manitoba at the end of April and uh, then in Alberta in the month of May. 
Well, maybe you could just explain why they're going to have to answer those questions and why didn't you ask them that, Marty, in BC? Well, I can tell you. I can tell you. The questions are being asked. Okay. And and the Chief Justice himself asked the question. Good. And in response uh, to the answer that he got, he said, so you're telling me that I need to take it on faith that Dr. Bonnie Henry is issuing these orders based on science. And so, and of course, he pointed out the irony that, you know, we're talking about religious services and he needs to take it on faith that Dr. Bonnie Henry is, <laughs> is doing uh, what she's apparently supposed to be doing, which is pub- protecting public health. And so, you know, John, I, I can't say that you should be holding your breath for, for any justification from any of the other provinces, including Alberta, that they have great scientific data to back up. Uh, their claims, because what we saw in BC is that they don't. Yeah, I, and if they do, they yeah. would have put it forward, and not putting it forward evidences the fact that they just don't. Gotcha. Now, just a technical point: you had made some uh, hay with the idea that Bonnie Henry had not filed an affidavit. Do you have an affidavit from Dina Hinchon? Is that the reason you get to ask these questions, John, or is there just some other compelling? reason that they're going to have to answer these questions just so we do we do have um we do have an affidavit from dina hinshaw in mm. uh our court challenge against the lockdowns in alberta that was filed on on uh friday december 4th and it's a it's a relatively short affidavit but my my understanding and I stand to be corrected on this, is that the cross-examination on affidavit can touch on all aspects of the court action. So Dina Henshaw's affidavit was was pretty short and uh, didn't say a whole lot, but we have the right to cross-examine. And I, I believe, and the government lawyers might object to this, they might argue, oh, you can only limit your questions to, you know, the, the half dozen short statements she made in the affidavit. But I I anticipate that our position will be no. Uh, the rule on cross-examination is that you can cross-examine on all aspects of the court action. So we plan to cross-examine uh, Dina Hinshaw on PCR testing and on the uh, the death numbers uh, because, of course, Alberta Health Services tells us that, that 75% of the people who died with COVID are um, elderly and have three or more serious health conditions like cancer or heart disease or emphysema. That's three quarters of the uh, of the reported deaths are people with three or more health conditions. It's only two and a half percent of people uh, alleged to have died with COVID that had no pre-existing health conditions. She's going to have to answer uh, also for all of the lockdown harms that she's been ignoring in in the past uh, twelve months. Or that's that's my opinion. I mean, Dina Hinshaw would say that you know she's not ignoring them, but. We, we've got no evidence. We, we've got a team of researchers. This is separate and apart from the, the, the team of lawyers. We also have three or four researchers that are working on trying to find out what is the government doing to uh, investigate and find out and track and monitor and study all of the different lockdown harms. And our research is turning up nothing. Hmm. Governments are not making neither the Alberta nor the BC nor the federal nor the Ontario government. None of them, uh, none of the provincial governments are making a serious effort to fully find out all of the lockdown harms, what they are, how serious they are. 
governments are not fulfilling their obligation under the charter to fully explore and fully investigate the lockdown harms. And uh, Dina Henshaw in uh, Alberta and uh, Brent Rusin, the chief medical officer in Manitoba, they're going to be cross-examined on lockdown harms, and it'll be interesting to see what they have to say. Did uh, lockdown harms get mentioned at all in the BC case? I know that it was particular to the churches and the protests, but uh, yeah. did that get mentioned at all? Well, certainly the, the harm that individuals are experiencing from being prohibited entirely from participating in their sincerely held religious beliefs and practices to gather together, uh, to pray together, to celebrate the sacraments of their faith, to receive that essential support for them uh, provided by their religious communities. That was brought to the court's attention. There are numerous affidavits about that as well. And so, yes, the particular aspect of that harm was there. Uh, and, uh, you know, in future challenges, the harms to, to other areas uh, will be addressed as well. Mm, okay, good, good. I just wanted to bring this up, John, because I know we're going to touch on it in future programs. Uh, we're talking this, what Marty and his team are, the team did. <laughs> I'll call it your team because you're here. But uh, what they did down there sounds sounds pretty good as in terms of you know the uh, the fight that is ongoing throughout the country. Uh, I understand in Alberta at least there's been some good news as well in terms of tickets being dropped and uh, cases being dropped. So we've got some good signs as well. John, is that true? Yes, we are regularly receiving. You know, we've got roughly 100, what, what we call internally, we call them ticket cases. And that would be a case where, you know, it's it's not like uh, some of our other larger, broader court actions, like the one that Marty was involved in in British Columbia, or our Alberta, Manitoba actions, or our uh, federal court action against Trudeau's uh, prison hotels or hotel prisons. We've got roughly 100 cases where people were issued a $1,000 ticket or a $1,200 ticket or a $500 ticket, whatever, simply for peacefully exercising their charter freedoms of, of association and peaceful assembly and so on. And uh, so far, we have not had a single ticket where the Crown says, yes, we're, we'll see you in court. We're going to set a trial date. So far, what we're doing is we, we get the ticket. Uh, we enter a plea of not guilty. We ask for a trial date. We ask for disclosure, which is the, the Crown's evidence, which would include things like policemen's notes or um, you know video evidence or audio recording. So we ask for disclosure. We plead not guilty. We ask for a trial date. And we indicate that we're going to challenge the constitutional validity of the health order under which the ticket was issued. And so far, uh, to my knowledge, there's not a single ticket where the Crown prosecutors have said, okay, you're on, we'll see you in court, you know, here's your trial date. We're just getting withdrawals and um, this is good. Like how many do you know or is it just- Marty would know better than me. Okay. Well, it's 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 coming up. I'm sure I'm sure we're going to be close to, to dozens in, in a very short time. Okay. And and the reality is is that many of of the you know ticket situations in other provinces, BC for example, where we have dozens and dozens of cases uh, of these tickets, uh, you know they have to come back to you and schedule a trial date. Well, not one single uh, response has been given scheduling a, a trial on any of these matters. And so you know it may be that the prosecutors are just literally going to ignore these things. Because the reality is, is when you turn regular citizens into criminals, 
that eats up court time that is dedicated and necessary to deal with actual criminals. And so a prosecutor, hopefully, is going to recognize that, you know, prosecuting a regular citizen for exercising charter freedoms versus prosecuting criminals who are doing harm to individuals, uh, there shouldn't be any debate about what case goes forward. And the reality is, is that, you know, our justice system is, in many cases, woefully underfunded, in my view. Some of these court cases... The, the many of these tickets, uh, many of these uh, criminals are getting dropped. Their charges are getting dropped because you know there's just not enough prosecutors, not enough judges, not enough court time to handle this. That was exacerbated through COVID, and now you know the government throwing a bunch of regular, ordinary people peacefully exercising their charter freedoms into that you know criminal process. Uh, you know that does not help with the backlog. So certainly, I, I think uh, it's it's a positive sign to see these uh, tickets getting dropped. And, uh, you know, any ticket that does move forward, the Justice Center is going to be there to, to fight them tooth and nail on every, every point under the Constitution. And so, uh, yeah, we will, we stand ready. Yeah. And you would be using some of the same defenses that you used in that court case in BC as well for the ticket type offenses. Say they go to court, would you be using different? Absolutely. I mean, if the, if the BC government, for example, wants to prosecute any of our clients who are protesters in BC saying, okay, Here's your $2,300 ticket. You must pay up. And, and of course, they've all pled not guilty. We're going to put them to the evidence of saying, okay, well, show us how many transmissions happened in protests in the province of BC. We already know the answer. That's zero. And so the prosecutor is going to have to present that lack of evidence to the court. And uh, we'll see what a judge does with the ticket like that. I, I think probably most of our audience can figure out the answer for that one. Right. Okay. So- Speaking speaking of hitting all the angles, uh, one thing when Marty was speaking earlier about uh, BC and the the government lawyer made some comment to the effect of you know BC's chief medical officer Bonnie Henry, uh, you know that she could or would or should do such and such. It's just a shameless, naked abdication of democratic accountability, and this is one of the issues. It wasn't argued, I believe, in in British Columbia, but we're definitely arguing it in our. Um, Alberta and Manitoba court actions and our forthcoming Saskatchewan action likely as well. And that's the point that under Canada's constitution, laws of general application to the entire population need to be passed by the legislative assembly. That's democracy. We elect our our representatives. The representatives pass laws. The laws are debated. They're introduced on first reading, second reading, third reading. There is opportunity for public input. There's a legislative process whereby after after second reading, the bill will go into a committee, which has uh, MPs or, or provincial MPPs, MLAs of different parties, and they will look at ways to change it, amend it, improve it, and then it's brought back again for for third reading. And um, this whole legislative process is important to our democracy. But what we've got is effectively a medical dictatorship where these chief medical officers are exercising authority on the fly. We just had a situation in Alberta where the um, uh, Marty, you can correct me if I'm wrong. We just had this email exchange in the past day. Uh, a few days ago, the restaurants and churches were limited to 15% capacity, but now this the would be retail suddenly, settings. Yeah. Or retail, retail settings. settings. Retail yeah. settings. So churches and retail settings are limited to 15% capacity. But as of yesterday, the retail capacity has now been bumped up to 25%. 
How was this done? Was there any input from any elected member of, of the uh, Legislative Assembly of, of Alberta? No, it was uh, I, Dina Hinshaw, Chief Medical Officer of Health, decree as follows. And you just get these these orders just get issued on the fly that impact people's lives and livelihoods. And there's no uh, open or transparent democratic input whatsoever uh, we can surmise and and guess and infer that that MLAs might be making some noises behind the scenes, and maybe maybe some of the you know elected people are contacting Dina Hinshaw and quietly behind the scenes providing input. Perhaps, perhaps not. We have no idea. So this is the repudiation of our democracy when you've got an unelected, unaccountable doctor that is making laws for the entire province which change every few weeks, which have a huge impact on people's lives, and there's zero democratic accountability. And so that also is a constitutional argument, separate and apart from the charter that we are raising in our court actions. Well, and it was, it was brought to the court's attention in, in British Columbia. The, the, the jurisdiction under which Dr. Bonnie Henry is issuing these orders is the exact same jurisdiction that would allow an medical officer to look at a restaurant and say, you know, you have unsanitary practices in the kitchen. We order that you clean those up or, or they find, you know, a particular uh, building to be infested with a harmful chemical. And so, so they order that building to be shut down. That is the jurisdiction under which these health orders are being authorized. Not a provincial lawmaking jurisdiction, not even a uh, an order of regulations in council that would have to be brought before the cabinet of the province. But no, this is the jurisdiction of just a medical health officer to shut down an unsafe situation or setting in the province. That's the jurisdiction that these medical health officers are acting under, and that's and and the judge the judge was like trying to understand. He wanted the government to provide uh, him with a chart outlining the authority that Dr. Bonnie Henry had uh, to issue these orders. And, and that's what it is. If, if, you, if you, as a medical health officer, find some setting that's unsafe, you can go shut that down. But in the, in the course of this, you know, this hysteria about COVID-19, uh, that ordering power has now been inflated to say that Dr. Bonnie Henry can order anyone, anywhere, in the province to do anything she thinks they should. Including including shut down the justice system. Just incredible, breathtaking abilities of power. And, and so, so that, that uh, the scope of these orders was not lost on, on, on the court. And, you know, what is the jurisdiction she's acting under? Right. Great. Well, I think that uh, that was very enlightening. Thank you very much, Marty, for, uh, bringing us up to date on what happened in BC. And thanks, thanks John, for uh, arranging this so that uh, you could be with us today. Glad to join you both. Well, I guess we'll call an end to episode 10 of Justice with John Carpe. Uh, we'll be talking to you next week, John. All right. Take care, guys. Thanks, Kevin and Marty. Bye.